Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is a living word of God for us today. Thanks, Joe. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Colossians chapter 2. If you still have your Colossians journal that we gave out at the start of this series back in the early fall, pull that out as well. Uh, if you're new to fellowship or you're still getting to know us, um, this is what we typically do is we will choose a book of the Bible and we'll just start with chapter 1, verse 1, and just teach it through. And that's what we've done with this letter, Paul's letter to Colossians, uh, which is just a glorious little book. I, I say little, we're spending a long time in it because we want to take our time because there's so much to mine from this book. So it's four chapters. We're just starting chapter two, and we've been in it, uh, feels like half a year. It actually hasn't because we took a break for our Advent series. Uh, we are going to pick up the pace a little bit. We're going to finish Colossians by Easter time, and then after Easter, we'll spend a little time in Philemon, uh, which is a, a, another letter that would have accompanied Colossians when it was delivered. Let me tell you a little bit about Colossians, uh, just to give a recap to where we've been, and then we're going to start chapter two today. The author is Paul, um, the Apostle Paul. Everyone's familiar with Paul. He was the evangelist to the Gentiles in the first century. He would have written this letter around 60 A.D., so think about that. The life of Christ would have been uh, Christ would have been crucified and risen around 33 or so, 33, 35, somewhere in that range. Uh, and so this was less than 30 years after. This was still, you know, people were still alive that would have heard these words and would have read these words of Paul that had seen Jesus post-resurrection. Uh, he wrote it from prison. We know that because he references his chains a couple of different times. He was either imprisoned in Rome when he read it or possibly in Ephesus. We're not exactly sure which time he was, he was imprisoned in both of those locations, but we know he was in chains when he wrote it. We know he'd never met these particular people, but he'd heard about their faith. It was a young church in the small town of Colossae, which is what is now modern-day Turkey. And so he wrote them a letter to encourage them and instruct them and to teach them. This letter would have been delivered uh, by a courier from from. Paul's prison and would have gone back in Colossae. The courier would have made rounds delivering other letters to other churches. There's a reference here in our text this morning to the church at Laodicea. We'll talk about that a few minutes. But the last thing I want to say, just by way of summary of this book, is the theme of Colossians is Jesus Christ, the center of all things. What Paul is saying over and over and over again is he's saying, listen, you can, you can look to the highest highs and the, the, the vastness of the universe and you can look to the smallest particles and what you're going to find in, in, in ev those places and everywhere in between is Jesus Christ is all and in all and that doesn't make sense if you think about it. I'm like, all right, how could, a, how could a, a person, even a person who we would say is God, you know, fully man and fully God, how can a person be all and in all, Colossians 3.11 is, is where that, that phrase comes from. Christ is all and in all. And it's his thesis statement throughout this book. Here's what it means for us. If Jesus Christ really is the center of all things, as Paul is saying here, 
then the path toward human flourishing is to put him at the center of all of our things. Our families, our marriages, our friendships, our careers, our understanding of ourselves, our identity, our work, our culture, our hope for the future. This is where Colossians will take us, Jesus Christ, the center of all things. So today we start chapter two, and, and Joe has read uh, the verses for today. If you have this Colossians journal that we gave out earlier, it's on page 10 of this. Now, you don't have to have one of these, obviously. You can just bring your own Bible. But what I like about these journals is it's very simple. It just has you know the text on the left side and then a lot of blank space for note-taking. And we take a lot of notes here. We'll draw things. And today I'm going to use the board, which we don't always do, but we'll draw some things on the board that you can copy down. If you still want one of these, by the way, we don't have any more to give to you, but they're available on amazon.com. I'm sure other places as well. $5.99, uh, even prime delivery. So you know, it's a good, good deal. Grab one of those maybe for next week. Okay, I want to do a little math on the board today. And we, we don't typically do math. Uh, I, I'm not a math guy necessarily. And we talk a lot here about history and literature and definitely theology, obviously. But math is, is one of those subjects that we don't talk about probably enough. And I want to do a little practical math. In fact, this is not uh, anything that's going to wow anybody in the room. Um, but I do want to encourage you to think about a simple math equation that you and I do literally thousands of times a day without even thinking about it. And the equation looks something like this. Value equals what you get divided by what you give. Or maybe you say what you pay, if you're thinking about it strictly from an economic standpoint. Uh, value, this is what I call the value equation. Just is very simple. What you get divided by what you give. Or you could say the benefit divided by the cost. There's a lot of different ways to think about this. Uh, you and I are running this equation, I mean, literally thousands of times a day. Any decision you make to purchase something or even how to spend your time, you're running this equation. And if you remember math, you know, for, for those of you who's been a while like me, it's been a while since you really thought about math, you know, you've got two parts to, to a division equation here. The top part's called the Anybody remember? I thought so. Like you're like me, you gotta get the cobwebs out. The numerator in the bottom half is called the denominator. And I learned a way this week to remember that. Nice dog. That's a nice dog. Numerator over denominator. There you go. See, now you'll always remember that. So you make a purchase equation. Let's say you're going to buy a cup of coffee. And you, you look at the menu and you're like, okay, the cup of coffee is X number of dollars. Is what I'm getting in that cup of coffee worth it? You do the mental math in your head just uh, subconsciously. And if this does not equal more than one, you're not going to make that purchase decision. So let's say you show up at Starbucks and the cup of coffee is now $28. Some of you would probably still do it because, you, know, you know, Starbucks. But m most of us are going to say, no, 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 what I'm getting is not worth what I'm giving. And so this is how this works. So walk this through with me for a minute. Um, just think about the largest bill you have in your wallet. You can look if you want to. You don't have to. But I have a 20, you know, and, and I'm thinking about this 20. And I'm like, what would I, I want to ask you, what would you give for, for the largest bill you have in your wallet right now? And I'm not going to literally do this, but I could. And there's some things that I would give, I would trade this for. I would trade this for a really good steak dinner, you know. Some of you wouldn't. I would. You know, I, I would trade this some days for a, a hug from my teenage daughter. 
Um, I'll tell you what I wouldn't trade it for. I, I wouldn't trade it for a cup of coffee. It's not worth it for me. I, there's a lot of things I wouldn't trade it for, but there's a lot of things I would trade it for. We're, we're trained to think about money this way, but, but let me go a little bit, something a little bit harder. Think about your most valuable material possession. Not money, I'm talking about a physical thing. What's your most valuable thing? Maybe it's a house, maybe it's a piece of property, maybe it's a car. I don't know what your most valuable physical thing is. Maybe for some of you, maybe it's a piece of jewelry. I don't know. For me, it's my house. You just say, Rob, what would you trade your house for? Be a little bit harder, but I could think of some things. I mean, if you offered me another house that was worth twice as much nearby location, I'd say, sure, I'll do that trade. Or a huge, you know, a lot of land somewhere. Sure, I'd, I'd do that trade. Let me make it even harder. Think about a non-material, or maybe it's material, but it's a sentimental item. What's a sentimental item that you highly value? Just think about that. Maybe it's a letter you got from someone or, or a, an heirloom from a family or um, a, a journal that you had. For me, my, my first prayer journal, when my relationship with Christ started coming alive when I was a teenager, something I treasure and value. Um, my girls each have their original lovey, you know, their, their little stuffed animal or blanket that they had. They, they treasure that. And if I were to ask you, think about that sentimental thing, what would you trade that for? It gets a lot harder. Why does it get harder? Because I'm, I'm, I'm messing with this equation, right? What I'm saying is, what would you have to get in order to give something of great value? So as this bottom part, and what do we call the bottom part? Yes, the denominator. I actually asked because I couldn't remember at the top of my mind. Nice dog. As this goes up, well, the numerator has to go up too in order for the equation to still equal one or more. Do you see? I want to take you to one more place and, and break the equation. Think now about one of the most important relationships in your life. A parent, a child, a grandchild, a spouse, a brother, a sister, a friend. What would you be willing to trade that relationship for? It breaks. The equation breaks. Why does it break? Because as, as this part, this denominator, starts to approach infinity, you get an error message in your calculator. <laughs> you can't divide by infinity. You, you get a message as error. Some, my favorite abbreviation is DNE, does not exist. The, the equation breaks. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Paul's message in Colossians? In, in these five verses, and Paul is making a value proposition. Here's what he's saying. He's saying there is something that is a treasure of limitless value that's worth giving everything for, if you have it, if you can get it. Once you've found it, Paul's going to say, don't trade anything for it. Treasure it above all else. Let's look at how he builds this case, starting in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who've not yet seen me face-to-face. -face. Let, let's pause there for a minute. Struggle comes from a Greek word that has an athletic context. So it's the idea of opposing someone else in, 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 a, you know, in wrestling or you're going to race against them. So there's an opposition or there's an opponent and, and there's you and you're struggling against them. Uh, Paul is saying, even though I've never met you, I'm struggling for you. I'm in the fight with you. I care about you. I want you to win. I want you to grow. I want you to thrive. I mentioned there were some other churches that Paul also wrote letters to. One of those would have been Laodicea. It was the next closest town to Colossae. It was about 12 miles up the Lycus River. Uh, it was most likely their next, their closest church to them. And so Paul was saying, hey, I'm, I'm dropping a letter off for you. I'm dropping a letter off for them. Make sure you all exchange letters. That's exactly what he says in chapter 4, verse 16. 
He says, when this letter's been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, we don't have that letter. That was not one of the, the letters that was preserved in the canon of Scripture. We have the letter to Colossians, not to Laodicea, by, by God's providence. But what Paul is reminding them is you're not in the fight alone. I'm for you. I'm struggling with you. And you have brothers and sisters 12 miles down the road. I'm struggling for them as well. Um, most likely, Paul, in reference to his struggle, is talking about prayer. Because, you know, how, how else was he struggling for them? You know, it's not that hard to write a letter. I don't know that that was the struggle. He's saying, I'm engaging in a spiritual battle for you against a, a, a real opponent, a spiritual opponent, and I'm wrestling for you. I'm struggling for you. Quick application. Is there anyone in your life to whom you, you could say, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you? I've been on my knees for you. I care about you, and I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling in a spiritual way through prayer for you. Is there anyone in your life that you would say that about? Well, what is Paul praying so hard for? Why is he praying so hard? There's something that he wants these believers to get that is so valuable that, that he believes when, when they understand what they have, when they understand what they're getting, it's gonna turn their lives upside down or, or rather right side up. So what is it that Paul's praying for? Verse two. Verses two and three, the, the, the answer to the question, what is he struggling for, praying for? That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that's a long uh, sentence. It's actually not even a complete sentence, but it's a lot of words there. There are four different things that Paul is praying for, and, and I'm going to walk through them. But before I do, though, if you've been tracking with us through the series, you know every time we get to a direct reference to Jesus Christ, we put a box around it in the text. So go ahead and draw a box around the word Christ if you're taking notes in your Bible. There are actually uh, 63 direct references to Jesus in just 95 verses in this letter. So they happen often. So we're going to put a box around Jesus Christ. And the first thing that he's saying that he's wrestling for that he wants for them to get is, is right there at the top of verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged. So I'm going to write over here on the top side of this equation, on the numerator side of the equation, because it's part of what, what they get, what Paul wants them to get. I'm going to write this encouraged in heart. It's the first thing that he is struggling for, that he desires for them, that they be encouraged in heart. Now, all four of these you're going to find are more significant than they might first seem to our modern ears. Uh, encouraged in heart, we think about the heart just as bless your heart. And, you know, but the heart is the core person. The heart, according to scripture, we've talked about this before, is, is who you are. Like underneath, like the, the deepest part of you, it's, it's your thoughts and your emotions, your desires, your choices. It's, it's all of you. To be encouraged in heart. Encouraged is a compound Greek word and that translated into English, parakaleo. Para means alongside, kaleo means to call. So to be called alongside. Think about someone struggling, you know, with a fight. They call someone, they call in the reinforcements. 
Think about someone in an illness, just calling someone alongside to pray for them. Think about any kind of struggle. I mean, my, my daughter's struggling with her homework. She's going to call me alongside. I'm going to encourage her. I'm going to come along, call alongside. So, to be encouraged in your heart, in the core inner you. Can there be anything more wonderful to pray that someone would be encouraged in their heart and that you would come alongside at the deepest part of them? something beautiful to pray for. There's another thing that he's praying for and, and really struggling, and that is that they are, would be knit together in love. This is a, a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Um, he's using an image here, knit together. You know, it's, the, it's a cloth, it's a fabric, but what's gonna knit them together? Love. And, and not the kind of romantic you know, or emotional kind of love he's referencing. He's referencing the love of Christ, that they would love one another. So this is about them being united as a community. One of our core values here at Fellowship is that we believe we are better together. That's why we call you to be in a group. That's why we encourage you to, to come on Sunday mornings. That's why we have a team of people. I'm not the only pastor here. You know, Lloyd and I teach together. We have others that teach sometimes. We have multiple worship leaders that come. We believe we're better together. That extends in all kinds of ways. It's deep. It's core to what we believe. And here Paul is saying that they'd be knit together in love. Is there anything else that could possibly knit us together, men and women, particularly in a, a day and age that we're so fragmented and so fractured in all kinds of different directions? Knit together in love deep care and concern for one another that's rooted in Christ. That's where he goes next. So he's talked about, you know, I mean, courage in heart, knit together in love. Let's keep tracking through these verses to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Whew, that's a lot of words. So many words that you can kind of lose track of what he's saying. Let me simplify it. I think what Paul is getting after is the idea of knowing Christ. But why is he using so many words if that's what he's trying to say? Because he's not talking about intellectual knowing Christ. He's talking about the relational and experiential knowing. I mean, look at the words, riches, full assurance. You don't have assurance in a relationship with anybody until you really know them. You, know, you can know about someone and then you meet them and you're not gonna trust them. You're not gonna have assurance. You're not gonna be comfortable in your own skin around someone until you know them relationally, until you know them experientially. This is what Paul is talking about. It's a little like um, a blind person can know a lot about the color blue scientifically. They can know how the light interacts with it. They can know, you know what things in the world are blue. They can even know if they're an artist, the particular numbers of certain shades of blue from an artist's palette. They don't know blue like someone with sight who has seen blue. Paul is saying there, there is a, a deeper knowing. There is a relational intimacy that, that he is struggling for them to have, to not just know about Christ, but to know Christ. There's riches attached to that. And this idea of mystery is the idea that, that God's plan all along has been sort of hidden until Christ came and revealed it. The mystery revealed. He talked about that in chapter one as well. Paul is saying there's nothing greater than this, knowing Jesus Christ, God's mystery revealed. There's one more thing he talks about in verse three, in whom, he's referencing Christ, are hidden all the treasures 
of wisdom and knowledge. I'm gonna write those as the final thing um, on this numerator part of the equation here and what you get, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this is something, another one of those things that doesn't sound spectacular to us until you really understand what he's saying in context. All the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I have to concentrate really hard to write on a whiteboard in front of 200 people. All right. I always wonder if knowledge has a D. I think I got it right. Here, here's what Paul is saying. Um, wisdom, guys, for anyone with a Hebrew background that would have been reading this or, or even familiar with, with Hebrew culture and the Old Testament, which you know, most of these uh, readers would have been very versed in, wisdom is the end goal. Like, wisdom is what you should be willing to give your life for. Wisdom is massive, massively important. Um, and it doesn't make sense to us because we think of wisdom as, you know, well, I guess it's okay, it's good to be wise, but I don't know that that's the end goal. Uh, scripture talks about wisdom this way. Scripture describes wisdom as revelation from God that gives you the ability to live life the way God designed life to be lived. So think about that board game, the game of life. You know, we've used this illustration before. And you know, the game of life, you go around the board and you try to make money and buy houses and cars. And you, know, you, you don't want to be a, the, the teacher. You want to be the doctor, because you know, the doctor makes all the money and teaches our kids terrible lessons. But anyway, I, I, you know, if you had that game of life in front of us, you know, I took the box top off this game. I said, what's the most valuable thing in this box? It's not the houses. It's not the cars. It's not the money. It's the instruction manual. The instruction manual tells you how to go around the board, how to play the game, how to thrive. That's wisdom. See, God's the architect of life. Where, where else is wisdom for how to live and, and, and thrive going to come from other than from God? And so what Solomon was saying over and over in the Old Testament, and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and a lot of other books that, that Solomon wrote, was he was saying, wisdom is it. Give your life for wisdom. It's like treasure. It's like silver. Now, Paul, thousands of years later, is saying, oh, yes, and guess what? The, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is actually in him. Christ. Stored up. So Solomon may have been the wisest man who ever lived, but Jesus is the source of his wisdom. Jesus is the source of all wisdom, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And wisdom, the revelation from God, that it teaches us how to live life the way God designed to live life. Jesus is wisdom embodied. Listen to it this way. Jesus is both the architect of life itself and the archetype of human life the way it was designed to be lived. The only one who fully lived out God's intent and purpose for humanity. So if you want to know how to live, and don't we all, if you want to flourish, if you want to thrive, if you want to have joy, and not just happiness, which is like the greatest thing that our society knows to chase. No, no, no. If you want to have something greater than that, you want to have joy. Paul's saying, look to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Imitate Jesus. Treasure Jesus. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See how comprehensive and, and beautiful this is. Paul's making a case, so let's review them all. He's saying, listen, look into all these things that you get in Jesus Christ. Encouraged in heart, knit together in love, that you would have the relational experiential knowledge that would satisfy your soul and all the treasures of wisdom, knowing how to live life in a way that will lead to flourishing in the image of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, in essence, in Christ there is no limit 
to what you get. He is a treasure of infinite value. You might write it this way on our equation that Jesus Christ, infinitely valuable. Jesus, the treasure of infinite value. All these things on this top side of the equation. And Paul's saying, because, because all that's there, this is what I want you to get. In fact, I'm gonna write one other thing. If you were to kind of try to simplify this equation, you guys remember that from Matthew when I always wanna simplify your equations. Let me just draw this over here. That, that what you get, there's no limit to it. No limit. Now I'm gonna come back and we'll talk about the bottom, the denominator side in a little bit. But this is what Paul is saying so far. There's absolutely no limit to what you have in Jesus Christ. He's the treasure of inexhaustible wealth. If you found him, don't trade him for anything. If you found him, lean into him. Open yourself up to him. Mind the depths of his wisdom and knowledge. He's a treasure that becomes more valuable the more you lean in, the more you experience, the more you get to know him, the more you allow him to be an important relationship in your life. With that context, let's look now at verse four. We're gonna talk, start building the bottom side of the equation here in a minute. Verse four says, I say this, so he's given his reason for all that he's taught us so far, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Uh, the, the word here is delude, not dilute. You know, there are two different words spelled differently. Delude means to fool or to trick. So I, I say this, that no one may fool you. What are plausible arguments? Uh, in some other translations, uh, it's translated fine-sounding. And, and I like that direction a little bit uh, because it's a Greek word that was used by Plato and many others to talk about you know, arguments that sound good to the ears because maybe it's a skilled orator, but they lack substance. They're fine sounding. They sound real good, but when you just pull off the veneer, it lacks substance underneath. So here's what Paul was saying. Jesus is the most valuable thing you could possibly possess, the most valuable treasure. Might not always seem like it, but there's no need to look anywhere else. Don't listen to any other fine sounding, plausible thing that might you say there's something more valuable, there's wisdom that's more higher value than what there is in Jesus Christ. No matter how good some other philosophy or argument might sound, don't be fooled. Now, let me just take a couple minutes to, to apply this to us, and then we'll finish the text. We live in an interesting time, don't we? There's a lot of fine-sounding arguments in our day and time. And the, the number one fine-sounding argument that's out there, we'll all recognize this instantly. It, it sounds like this. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And you can't say yours is better than mine. You can't say yours is more valuable. You can't say yours is weightier. You can't say yours is worth more. You can't, you can't do any value judgment. You can't do any value assessment when it comes to what you believe is true. Like, that's a fine sounding argument. It sounds very plausible. But I want you to see, men and women, with, with not, not coming from, from my mouth, but from the weight of God's word, I want you to see that Paul is saying that's not right. But in fact, Paul's saying the opposite. Paul's saying there is one that has intimate value. There is one that in him all wisdom and knowledge holds. There is one that is of such value that nothing else can compare. He's not saying Jesus has his truth and you know this person has their truth and this person. Paul's not saying that. 
So if you believe the scripture, I, I hope you're encouraged by that. If you don't believe the scripture, then that, this, these words won't mean anything to you necessarily until the spirit begins to, to, to work. But, but I hope that you see this, that Paul is debunking this idea that you know everybody's truth is just everybody's truth. The more I mature in my faith, the more I come to realize that Christianity is Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean that our faith is Jesus. The Old Testament points to him. The New Testament describes him. He is the center of our faith. There should be no component of who we are and no cause that we take on that does not pass through Jesus Christ, the center of all things. Does that mean we should only be sharing witnessing and sharing our faith about Jesus and we should never do other kinds of good works? Of course not, but Jesus Christ needs to be our motivation. Jesus Christ needs to be the center. Jesus Christ needs to be the core. And so in church world, there's so many things we can get sidetracked on and we can get divided over and distracted over. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would be knit together in love, knowing Christ, because in him is all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Let's make it about Jesus Christ. That's the application, one of the applications for us. Don't let anyone delude you toward any other direction, no matter how fine sounding or plausible their arguments are. And let's finish the text this way. For though I am absent in body, Paul says, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Again, if you have a pen or pencil, put a box around the Christ. It's another direct reference to, to Jesus. We're tracking those as we go. Uh, you know, Paul's just warned them in verses one to four. He's saying, you know, don't be deluded. Now in verse five, he's saying, and you're doing great right now. You're doing great so far. Keep it up. Keep it up. It's encouragement. The phrase, I'm with you in spirit, we use that phrase in contemporary context. You know, at, it, this is where it comes from, it, it, at least in this instance. I'm absent in body, present in spirit. That's what Paul is saying. But he's not meaning it the way you and I mean it. We tend to throw that phrase out like, you're in my thoughts and prayers. I wish I could be there. You know, I'm there in spirit, that kind of sense. Paul's saying something more profound. Anytime Paul uses the word spirit, he's talking about capital S, spirit, Holy Spirit. He's talking about the third person of the Trinity everywhere in his writings that he references the word spirit. So when Paul says, I'm with you in spirit, he's talking about the unity he has with them, even though they've never met. A oneness that is found because the same spirit that indwells Paul, the spirit of Christ, indwells these believers far away. They are all in Christ, and Christ is in them, as we've already learned from chapter one. So there is a sense of oneness that's far richer and more substantive than simple sentimentality. There is a sense that Paul is actually with them in spirit. I want to take this one more place. Therefore, there is a unity of spirit that we share both with one another and let this blow your mind, with Paul and with these believers in Colossae, his letter we're reading from 2,000 years ago. We're with them in spirit. Now, don't take that weird like the spirit of Paul is in our midst. The spirit of Christ is in our midst. The spirit of Christ was in Paul. The spirit of Christ 
was in the, the, those who received this letter. So the same spirit that indwelled Paul and, and breathed out the scripture through him, the, the inspiration of the breathing out of the spirit through Paul as he penned these words, it's the same spirit that was in the believers when they received this letter. And as it was read to them, the spirit was, was illuminating the scripture and the spirit was saying, pay attention to that. I want you to hear that sentence. And, and this is where I'm gonna convict you and I'm gonna allow the words to fall weighty on you and encourage you and other things. And now the same spirit is in us illuminating the text as we read it, as we teach it, as we talk about it in small groups. This is what we mean when we say this is the living word of God for us today. The word is alive in the sense that the spirit who authored the word is alive and the same spirit that authored the word is in us, teaching us, illuminating the word. That blows my mind. I, I geek out on this stuff. I don't know if any of you all do, but I think it's profound. It's a different way to think about this book. It's a different book than any other book, this scripture. All right, let's move to some application um, just for a couple of minutes. My favorite parable is Matthew 13, 14. It's just one verse. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. This is Jesus that said this, teaching his disciples. Now, why would a man sell everything with joy? The only reason he would do that is because he knew that what he was getting was far more valuable than what he was giving. When he saw that treasure... You know, picture this, you know, this man's in an empty field, you know, it's like a deserted lot somewhere that nobody is as interested in because it's not good for farming and it's not good for anything else. And he, he's, he's messing around in it one day and he comes across and he sees, oh my goodness, if I could just own this field, I would be wealthy beyond my imagination. And so what does he do? He goes home and in joy, he tells his family, we're moving, we're selling it all. What are we doing? What are you doing? Trust me, there's a better treasure there is something of far more wealth. Let me ask you a question. What would you be willing to give for something of immeasurable worth? You see, what I'm doing is, is, is I'm pushing the equation the other way than I did at the top of the message. And Before, I was asking you, what would you have to give in order to give something of immeasurable worth? Now I'm saying, what would you be willing to give if you could get something of immeasurable worth? There, there is an answer to that question. It's everything. It's all you have. I, you'd be willing to give all that you had, just like this guy, the treasure in the field. Here's what you'd be doing, essentially, going back to our equation. You'd say, okay, fine, I'm going to simplify this. No limit to what I'm getting? Well, then there's no limit to what I'm willing to give. Now the equation works. What I'm not saying is that you can somehow earn your salvation, that you can purchase your salvation, that you could sell all that you have or, or, or commit more or anything in order to earn your salvation. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that when Jesus Christ calls a man or a woman to follow him, he calls all of you. All that you are, every bit of you. And, and there's a sense, absolutely, salvation is a free gift. It is. You just put your trust in Christ. I'll talk about that more in just a second. But once you receive this gift, you start to realize, oh my goodness, this treasure is worth all that I have. 
that this treasure, that the more I invest in my relationship with Christ, the more I give to it in that sense, the more I understand what I have, the more I experience Christ in the relational sense, the more I tap into his wisdom, the more I tap into his knowledge. What would you be willing to give for a treasure of limitless value? All that you have. Doesn't it make sense that that's the call of Jesus to his disciples? He says, don't hold back. Men and women, Christianity is Christ. Put all your eggs in that basket. Put all your chips on that square. Go all in. Christianity is Christ. And so I want to ask the ushers to go ahead and, and get the table elements for the Lord's Supper. And don't start passing them out yet, but just hold on to them and get in position. And while they're doing that, I just want to talk to us for a few more minutes. Um, two types of people in the room. Some of you have the treasure, some of you don't. You know, and, and I love you. Like, I, I desire, I feel a little bit in the sense that Paul was saying, I struggle. I've been struggling this week in these last few weeks preparing this message because I know some of you don't have the treasure and I want so badly for you to be encouraged in heart, knit together in love that you would know Jesus Christ and have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And some of you, you, you know about Christ, but you don't know Christ. Some of you have been kind of dancing around the treasure and going to churches and maybe even going to this church for a while, but, but, but you, don't, you don't have the treasure. Well, you say, Rob, how do I get the treasure? Men and women, through faith, through trusting. That, that's why I like the analogy, put your chips on that square. It's like, what are you counting on for life? What are you counting on for salvation? What are you counting on to make you right with God? If it's anything other than Christ, you've been deluded. You've been fooled. Put your chips on that square. Put your eggs in that basket. Make a bet. Put your faith, put your trust on Jesus. That he lived the life that, that even if you had a thousand lives to live, you couldn't live a fully righteous life that God requires. You couldn't do it. He lived that life for you. Put your faith in his life. And he, had, he died the death that, that you deserved. That. Even if you could die a thousand deaths, you'd never, you could never pay the, the rebellion in your heart against God that's expressed over time in sinful choices that we all have made. He died the death for you. Just one death. Put your faith in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Receive the treasure. It comes by faith. And once you've received it, you'll see, oh my goodness, it is worth all of me. And the more I invest, the more I understand the treasure that I have. Ushers, if you would start passing out the bread and the cup, and, and as that's being passed, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ at any time in your life, this morning for the first time, recently, years ago, in whatever church it was that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are welcome at this table this morning. And I want to encourage you just to take a bread and, and take a cup. If you've not yet put your faith in Christ, don't feel pressured to take that. No one's going to look at you weird if you don't take it. J just use this time to reflect in your own heart. And, and if you are taking a piece of bread and you are taking one of these cups, I, I want you to think about something. And, and I want you just to reflect on this. Here's the question that I want all of us just to think about in these next few minutes while the, the trays are being passed around. Here it is. What would it look like for you to be all in on Jesus Christ in this coming year? What would change in your life? 
What, what changes would you make? Would you need to make? Would you desire to make? And then what would it look like in terms of how that might play out this year? How that would play out in your relationships and how that would play out in your own heart and your own identity? And what would it look like if 2020 was a year that you said, you know what? I'm going all in on Jesus. I'm putting all my chips on that square.